Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. We're talking about a conversation that we had with Matamela, who is a former member of the ANC Party of South Africa. And he had a revelation that uh, they were doing something wrong. He wasn't sure exactly what. And uh, he started the Kingdom Governance Movement. And uh, somewhere along the line, somebody gave him one of our books in South Africa, and he's been reading them and sharing them with other ministers who are trying to do something different. And we talked a little bit this morning about uh, different uh, aspects of parliamentary government, and uh, we've been talking in our structure about constitutions. We've got a whole series on contracts, covenants, and constitutions, and... Uh, so we talked this morning about three basic questions that he brought up in our conversation the other day on a conference call. And we have all those recordings uh, at uh, Preparing You under uh, Matamela. And uh, we may put that under something else because I've been expanding it. Those questions had to do with how how is the church a government? How does it function as a government? How... How are we transformed in this process? Uh, you know, just basically, they were really good questions on how things work, and I put together an answer. I mean, I answered them right there on the spot. I didn't know what questions he was going to ask, uh, but uh, I've been answering questions for a long time on this. And so I also put together a notes page that shows basic, you know, three or four statements for each question. Uh, and, but in those statements, we have links to dozens of articles. And one of the last questions he asked, which I don't have on the page yet, uh, but we'll probably put something there, was asking about money, money systems. And I made reference to the fact that the unrighteous mammon is exactly uh, what we often use as money today. It's It's not real money. It's used as money or for money. And it is actually like Federal Reserve notes uh, or Treasury notes. And there's a number of different kinds. But most countries now use federal some form of Federal Reserve note, this uh, interest-bearing currency. And that's really nothing new in history, although it's new to a lot of people who haven't studied history. But you can actually go back to ancient Egypt and they had uh, similar uh, notes made out of clay. And uh, with scribings on them, and they used that as an exchange uh, commodity. And it was only really a value in Egypt, which forced people to, you know, buy Egyptian, so to speak. You know, like we buy American. And it, but what really what it was doing is it moved all the gold and silver and things that are normally used for money, copper and everything, into the hands of government. All the land was owned by the government wasn't owned by the people anymore. The people were not the state. The people were subject to the state. They were in a Corvey system of statutory bondage or statutory labor. Everybody in Egypt went into that during the famine because they needed to depend upon the wealthy man, the, the uh, pharaoh who became the pharaoh of Egypt, because he had the provisions and they had none. 
And so people sold themselves to the Pharaoh so that uh, 20% of whatever labor they had in a given year belonged to the Pharaoh. And that's what's happened. Everybody in the world today has returned to the bondage of Egypt because anywhere between 20 and 30 and 40 and 50% of what somebody produces in a given year is paid out in taxes. Money countries, they pay that out in income tax alone. And then they have taxes on gas and taxes on commodities. I mean, some countries pay 15% on commodities, including food. And so they're paying way more than the worst uh, tax period of czarist Russia, which usually only charged about 10% tax uh, total. A uh, peasant would have to pay 10% of his earnings to the to the czar. And they thought that was oppressive. But now people are paying 20, 30, 40% plus they're paying property tax and sales tax and state income tax and federal income tax and the tax, tax, tax. We're very productive people. Uh, we've enslaved machinery and so we're getting away with it. But uh, almost every country is plummeting greater, uh, more and more into debt. Every year, their children are born in debt, forty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars in debt, and they are going. Their labor needs to pay that off. They're not free. There's no new frontiers to go to or flee to. Everybody in the world has gone back to the bondage of Egypt, but there's a way back, and this is the message of the gospel. It always has been. It was the message that Moses brought. It's the message that John the Baptist brought. It's the message of Jesus Christ brought. Brought, and the reason people are in bondage is because they have sinned. What is that sin? They've done something that they should not have done. They have coveted their neighbor's goods. They've applied to men who exercise authority to get benefits at their neighbor's expense. And as I spoke this morning, Polybius says those people have become perfect savages. And uh, are prime again for once more a monarch and a despot and a you know, and a, a, a tyranny. And it's because they're willing to exercise authority over their neighbors. So, anyway, I quoted this morning this uh, fellow who was, uh, or Roger, who uh, was at a symposium that was dealing with uh, how South Africa could organize itself. And uh, and this is one of the things about coming up for uh, Montemello. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. And it really is irrelevant to what we need to do in seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he warns, uh, Roger warns that South Africa, uh, if it wishes to draw on the American experience, it needs to look at what America was doing when it began rather than what America is doing now. Because America was great. And what made America great? And I said I would be talking about that. Uh, we'll probably won't get too much of it in this show. But that is the case that America was a great nation when Turkoville came here. He, it was like coming to another planet. I mean, the, the prosperity in America was unseen and unheard of anywhere else in the world. Countries all over Europe and all over the world eventually were 
changing the way they governed. Kings were stepping down and people were establishing republics or parliamentary republics, different kinds of republics. But they were moving in the direction of a republican form of government. And that's how the prosperity reached out to all these other nations. The whole world could have been fed with what Americans were producing. If you went into farming, you could retire at 45. Uh, the wealth in this nation was untold. Uh, my own uh, great-grandfather uh, was an extremely successful farmer. He started farming with mules. I think he started farming with oxen, actually. And then eventually graduated up to mules. But he was wealthy enough to put numerous kids through college. Uh, not his own. Just other kids. Other kids he saw potential in. And this is what was going on all over America. Is that people were building roads. People were building schools. People say, you know, that Jefferson wanted to have public education. Well, he did introduce a bill in Virginia to have public schools built in every ward. He referred to the wards as republics. The wards were republics. The counties he referred to as republics. And, of course, the states were republics. In truth, the United States federal government is not a republic. It is a democracy. A federal democracy that was instituted to guarantee a Republican form of government to the states. Now, a lot of people don't get that. But the, if you actually read the Constitution, it, it's written to guarantee a Republican form of government. But if you actually read it, read the Constitution, and know what a republic is, you'll realize that a republic, the United States is not a republic. Uh it was closer to a republic than it is today, but it is clearly an indirect democracy. You have an electoral college, uh, you elect congressmen and senators, and those congressmen and senators go and decide issues, make laws, regulate uh, this, that, and the other thing. Now, originally, they didn't have much power to regulate the individual lives of the people, but that was before everybody became United States citizens. And before the 14th Amendment. So all these things are changing. And people want to blame it on those people who passed the 14th Amendment. No, it's your actions that are making the difference. Or your inactions making the difference. If you are actually seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and Edward Gibbons refers to the early church as a viable republic in the heart of the Roman Empire. An ever increasing state. And what it was is in South Africa, and again, I haven't read the bill that's coming up. Maybe somebody who uh, uh, can get a hold of Mr. Matamela and they can send me a copy of what that is that's coming up in August. And I'll take a look at it if I get the time. Uh, I have to hone my time a little bit different than I've been doing. There's too many people pulling on my time that are not a part of the network. And I'm really just going to have to cut them off. Join the network. Or, you know, go it alone. I mean, it's up to you. I mean, I believe in free choice. Now, if you join the network, people think, well, have you joined? Do I have to join your church? Well, one thing, it's not my church. It's Christ's church. And all the network is is conforming to what Christ commanded. 
We don't tell you, if you start, if you join a congregation, a free assembly in the network, you can still join some other church somewhere. We don't have any objection to that. People were actually shocked when I said, they said, you mean if I join the congregation in the church, I can continue to go to my own church? It's just absolutely. What, what power do we have to stop you from going into another church or going anywhere you want to go? I mean, unless you're, you're doing something that is harming other people, uh, we don't, we're not going to regulate your action. We're not coveting our congregations. They're free assemblies. You have to choose to gather. The responsibility is in your corner. People don't get that. They think that, oh, you know, because they see so many churches out there saying, oh, well, we don't want you going to these other churches. Uh, if you're a part of this church, you, you can't, you shouldn't go to these other churches. Why? Because they're afraid of losing congregate members. You're not members of the congregation. You're in free assemblies. You're not in unincorporated associations. If you don't understand what I'm saying, you still got more studying to do. So anyway, Roger was saying, look at this early America because what they were doing was what made America great. Roger believed that the progressive era, which I'm not sure exactly when that started. I, I know there's evidence of a progressive era starting at least in the 1850s. But, you know, I could actually extend it all the way back to Hamilton, who, I mean, there was a guy who wanted to establish, you know, a U.S. bank. And we talked about that. Did, did they really have in the Commerce Clause the right to establish a federal government bank? No, not really. But nobody challenged it. Or not sufficiently challenged by the states. The states should have challenged it. But they didn't. Uh, at least not sufficiently. There were some presidents who were against it and there were an opposition, but the opposition got weak and tired and died and they, they continued with, and eventually they established the Federal Reserve, which is not even a government bank. It's a private bank with a government charter. To be the bank of bankers. So, if we got rid of the Federal Reserve, would that solve the problem? No. Because the problem is you. You can do something about you. You really can't do anything about the Federal Reserve. But if you do something about you, and this is my contention. If you do what the early church was doing, what Christ commanded, which is what Moses commanded. If you do that, follow the plan of God. You will disempower the Federal Reserve. It can still be there. It can still provide services, but you will disempower it. Now, you got a long ways back, so it's not going to be so simple. You don't just file some paper and then suddenly you're free. No, there's, there's a problem. There's lots of problems and lots of layers, but it is very simple what you should be doing. And we talked a great deal about that this morning. So anyway, uh, Roger goes on and all the, there's, I have links to his article, his original articles, and and how he was questioning the symposium. But in the article, he, he agrees that there, there are four essential elements of a limited constitutional democracy. And see, the United States is a democracy. Even the American Creed, which was read in Congress, I think, around 1913. And it says, I believe in the United States, a democracy in a republic. That's that's what people have to realize. The United States government is a democracy. 
in the Republic. But most people were not citizens of that democracy. They were citizens of their individual states. That's that's one of those things that changed. But you changed it. Your fathers changed it. Your grandfathers changed it. So anyway, what are these essential elements of this limited constitutional government? Free elections. And I said, in the kingdom of God, there's free elections. You don't elect some president, some executive officer who's going to rule over you. You don't elect some congressman who's going to pass laws to to make rules for you. And um, so who are you electing? You're electing a public servant. And, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about liturgy. Liturgy means public service. That's what it means. And going to church was where you obtained public service. Service was actually service. You know, if if there was a need, if there was a difficulty, you could go to the church and the, your minister would try to find a solution. He had to do it through faith, hope, and charity. He couldn't do it through force, fear, and violence. But it was his job to find a solution. And, and the solution he found had to make you stronger, not weaker. But you got to elect the minister of your choice. If you didn't like him, you could elect a new minister the next next day. You know, the next hour. You could elect two, three different ministers in one day if you wanted to. Although it gets kind of confusing. You shouldn't be doing it. That way, that I think there's something wrong if you're doing it that way. Although there were times when emperors changed almost that quickly. There were times when, I think there was several emperors in one month. They'd elect one and then they would get mad and have them executed and start over again like somebody else. And they just kept turning them over pretty quick. So there's an election in the kingdom. But again, you're not electing a ruler who can exercise authority, because we're forbidden to do that. You're electing a servant, a public servant, a liturgical servant, who is supposed to provide health education and welfare, education uh, in, in many different areas, linking you together with everybody else, and in linking you together, you have your militia and your battalions and your platoons, in case of a foreign invasion. You already have that set up, because you already are linked. All the way across the board. This is why, this is why emperors feared Christians. Because, and it says, right in Gibbon's rising, uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire, they feared them because of the union and discipline of the Christian community. Because if they decided to revolt, even though they were only like 5% of the empire, they they were so well organized, it scared the emperors. But of course, that's not how they win, and they knew that, so they weren't going to do it. And so that's why some of the emperors said, leave the Christians alone. Because they didn't want to tempt them to, to try to violently overthrow. Because if you really do what Christ says, you won't have to violently overthrow. Violence may eventually come, but it won't be you who starts it. So anyway, what's the second thing? The legitimacy of a political opposition. Well, now that, how does that fit into the kingdom? Now, political opposition in the United States, we basically have a two-party system. We have Republicans and we have Democrats. There are a lot of other parties, but they almost never get anywhere, never have any uh, candidates elected. 
So it's generally considered a two-party system. That's not the way it started, but and we talked about that this morning, but that's the way it ended up. But the legitimacy of a political opposition in the kingdom of God, could there be a political opposition, politics being just people, and your ministers are political, but they don't, they're, they're not archae, they don't exercise authority, they exercise service. Because Christ wasn't creating offices of authority. Now, the apostles did have authority, but they only had authority over what was freely given them. And if you gave to Peter, what you gave to Peter was Peter, he got to decide how to distribute it. If he wanted to take 20% of it and send it to Corinth, he could do that. If he wanted to take 50% and send it to Galatia, he could do that. If he wanted to keep it there and redistribute it among... He could do that. He had absolute dominion over what was given him. Same with Paul. What was given Paul was his to decide. What was given Barnabas was his to decide. And because they couldn't exercise authority one over another. And this is, so that's a free government. Now, and there were limitations on the office of Peter and the office of Paul and the offices of Barnabas and the other ministers of the church. There were things they couldn't do. But they were free to make a choice as to how to do what was freely given them. So that's their authority is over stuff you give them, never over you. In every other government, just about, on the face of the earth, I I shouldn't say everyone because there might be some exceptions, you give government authority over you, not just the stuff you give them. And when the Israelites went into Egypt, they gave the government authority over their animals because they traded the, the the legal title to their animals or the lawful title to their animals for a legal title. And now the government literally owned their sheep. But of course, the, what's the Pharaoh going to do? Herding thousands of sheep. So he gives them back to you, but he only gives you back legal title. And so if you're reading this page that I put together, and I'm in the section of Climate of Ideas, which I just uploaded seconds before the show. I just slid in here less than uh, a minute or so before the show had to begin. <laughs> because I'm so busy with other people and and trying to not be a burden to the people. You know, my time is limited here. So anyway, the legitimacy of the political opposition is every elder of every family because you know as you see in uh, congress they divide uh while you have congress you have the uh which is part of the uh, and the senate which is the legislative part of government and then you have the executive branch which is the president and his cabinet etc those are the executive branch And then you have the judiciary, which is the Supreme Court. Well, the division of the power of government in the kingdom of God is every family. Most of the power of the state is in the hands of every family. And those families come together in free assemblies without waiving the right to any of their inalienable rights, their inherent natural rights. They all remain intact. But you need to sometimes build me roads. 
You may need to build a bridge. You may, may need to uh, do some civic project that requires lots of people. Well, lots of people have to volunteer to make it happen. And in a society where you're dependent for all your social welfare on the charity of the people who you are networking with, because the kingdom of heaven is like a net, that those same people also are going to see the need for the bridge or the road. They know if we build a road into our community, we can use the road to trade goods out of our community and become a wealthier community. Because we can we can find more markets than just our closed community. And so they will produce and sell out of the community. And so they know that there's a need for a road, so they build a road. And that's that's not only doable, that's been done many times. They're not going to teach you that in public school, but that's the way much of America was organized. Our system of roads did not come about because we created a strong central government. Since the roads came about, now the central government has taxed us greatly and built the roads, but we already see the infrastructure breaking down. Now, do we get rid of the government? No, we start taking back our responsibilities. We don't have to start with building roads. We have to start with caring about one another because we want to build that fellowship and relationship of actually being there for one another. But every man is a political opponent or he's your political fellowship. And he must decide that. Because he may oppose. I don't think we should build a road there. I don't think we should put a well there. I don't think we, I think we should do it over here. And that's working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But you have to respect the rights. If you set up an elder council, and I was going to mention this to Mr. Montemello, because they've already set up elder councils to help do their own internal governing. And it's a great idea. But every man, Every elder of every family needs to guard and protect those elders they put in these higher positions. Protect them from beginning to become authoritarian offices. They they will be people who come to the the people and say, we need this. Can we get volunteers? Can we get contributions? We have to have an aqueduct. Bring water here for this community because it doesn't have good water. You know, Flint, Michigan, worried about the government's not doing it for them. They could have done it for themselves a long time ago. They don't believe they could or they would have done it. But that's part of the fact that everybody thinks you need government to do this. You need love for one another to do it. That's what you need. So anyway, the third thing is limits on arbitrary arrest, detention, and punishment. Well, you know, Moses goes through a big long list of things that you can't do and you can do. And some people say he promotes slavery. No, slavery, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, those are all limits. You can't, you can't, uh, steal all the teeth in a man's mouth because he knocked out one of your teeth. <laughs> you you can't make him build you a house because he burned down your shed. You can only get recompense to the amount that he has caused damage to you. 
That's what they're talking about. And of course, taking his eye doesn't get you an eye back. But if he's cost you the loss of an eye, he owes you the value of an eye, whatever that is. And, and you have to work that out. Well, do you have a system of courts? And we'll get to that. That's actually not in the list of four. Because the symposium didn't put it in the list. Not because uh, Roger thinks it shouldn't be in the list. And I'm just using Roger's uh, work. And uh, there's a link to it so you can go read it yourself. And download it yourself and look it over. It's kind of well done. Although he didn't really have answers. But he was pointing out what the the uh, progressive side of things was missing. And I'm just taking it to the next level, what they're both missing. So you can't arrest anybody for a crime that isn't committed. You need witnesses that there was a crime. The crime has to be against a real person or his property. And you can't just, you know, make up arbitrary crimes like... uh you know, he crossed the road without watching the lights. He jaywalked in the middle of the night when there were no cars anywhere except for one cop behind a billboard. He did no harm. He violated a statute. So, yeah, you could probably give him a ticket and fine him and collect some money out of him. And you can call it a sin tax. <laughs> but that's you don't have that in the kingdom. You know, if he runs out in the traffic and causes somebody to slam on their brakes and hit their head or their uh, swerve out of the way and hit the curb and their airbag goes off and they get an arm broken by the airbag and, well, then you, you can sue that guy. You can have that guy arrested by police powers and force that guy to pay recompense. Because he's damaged you by irresponsible activities. Kind of like Moses had all these statutes. The statutes weren't laws. He's trying to explain how the Ten Commandments work. And so you say, well, thou shalt not kill. So you, if you run up to a guy and stab a knife into his chest and somebody sees you, you have killed that guy. That's murder. You can be held liable for that murder. Very clear. But what if you built a really crummy balcony and invited him up for drinks, got him drunk, and then let him lean on the balcony, and the balcony broke away and fell down, and he got killed? Whose fault is that? Well, he got drunk, but you gave him the liquor. He he leaned on the rail, but it was reasonable to expect the rail to hold. It didn't hold because you did a poor job, and so your negligence contributed to his death so you can be held responsible to one degree or another for his death. Same as if you had a dog that bites and a bull that pushes, you can, and it causes damage and you knew it was danger that it would cause damage. You dig a pit by the side of the road and somebody's car falls into it because you didn't mark off the pit and it wasn't clearly visible and marked. You can be held responsible. But there still has to be a victim. In modern society, if you don't build your balcony according to their rules, they fine you and you haven't even caused any injury yet. You didn't let anybody up on the roof. And and when they came up, you said, stay away from the balcony. I still got some more supports to put in there. And the guy says, I don't care what you say. I'm going to go push on the balcony. He pushes on it and falls off. Well, 
you, you shouldn't be held responsible for that. But I can show you case after case today where in the courts people let the guy sue under those conditions and take the guy's money. Why? Because he's got insurance and he can afford it and because these people don't understand justice. They don't understand how justice is applied. Why? Because they haven't been seeking the kingdom. They've been operating according to the civil law, which is the law that men make for themselves. It's not natural law. So anyway, there's lots of things in the kingdom we could go through that limit the power of arbitrary arrest, detention, and punishment. One thing, there are no laws really to punish people in the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of people are going to argue with that. The punishment is of God. What they're looking for mostly is recompense. There are things where they talk about stoning, but they're not actually talking about hitting women in the head with rocks. They're talking about cutting people off from the living stones of the altar. No more welfare. You're promiscuous, uh, I won't say the word, woman. <laughs> and you won't be loyal to any husband. And you go around and you get pregnant all the time. And you expect us to send you a check for every new kid you produce. We're not doing that. Because you're going to raise a bunch of juvenile delinquents because you have no father in the house because you have never been loyal to your husband. So that, that, they're going to have to learn, like the woman at the well, to be loyal to a husband. They're going to have to learn to have a husband by being a wife. Now how that works out, that's, that's something everybody has to learn. And so, the last thing on his list of four is uh, protection for minority rights. Well, again, I hate that term, minority rights, rights of minority. Well, the Bible talks about that. You cannot oppress the stranger in your midst. You know, somebody who's not a part of the network of the kingdom, you're not supposed to be suppressing him or oppressing him or treating him unjustly. So, the, the law is there. And if you're caught doing that, he could bring a complaint to your community and your community should uphold the fact that this man is taking away the rights of somebody even though he's not in their network. This ends one of the great divisionary aspects of tribalism, which is one of the great problems of South America and places like Ethiopia, is that they are very loyal to their tribe, but the next tribe is on his own. In the kingdom of God, no, you have to care about your neighbor and your neighbor's tribe as much as you care about your own. Justice is not exclusive to one group. And that's one thing that South African people, because I know there's a lot of tribes and there's a lot of different clans and there's a lot of different groups, they have to work on that. So there's there's more to all this. And uh, I was going to see where we're at. Uh, we've passed our break time. So welcome back. So we have those four different items that he considered essential elements of uh, limited constitutional democracy. And of course, there's a democratic element to the kingdom of God, but it's not a democracy. It's a uh, it's a monarchy with God as the monarch. Well, if God is a monarch, how do you know what God is saying? Do you have some single holy guy you go and ask and he tells you what God is saying ex cathedra? No. Christ said, I'm going to build my ecclesia 
upon the rock of revelation. Not Peter, the rock of revelation. Blessed are you, Simon, you know this, not because flesh and blood has revealed it, but my Father in heaven. This revelation of God in your heart and in your mind. You just figured it out, so to speak. Now, people can argue whether that exists or not, but people do experience that, claim to experience that. And so now it's up to you to figure out what, who is really receiving the revelations of God. In order for you to know, you need to be receiving the revelations of God. And everybody does to one degree or another, although some people are far from the kingdom. The the more unselfish you are, the more self-sacrificing you are, the more virtuous you are, the more you will receive those revelations. The more you act upon what you you uh, re- is revealed to you in a righteous way, the more will be revealed to you. And just, that's just the way it goes. So, that, that aspect of that uh, election is, is where that comes in. And you will know them by their fruits, whether they're doing righteousness or not. And, but anyway, what are some of the things that we didn't mention that are also considered essential elements? And one of them was independent judiciary and an independent private watchdog organizations. Uh, what are these independent watchdog organizations? Well, one could be the press. Another one could be, you know, bloggers <laughs> who go out and independent investigators. But what's the independent judiciary? Well, the independent judiciary has to be somebody who has good judgment, who understands the law, somebody you would want to trust judgment to. Well, who would that be? Well, it would be the Levites. It would be the church. But, of course, it's not the church you see out there operating today. It's the church that's actually rightly dividing the bread from house to house, that are men of good report, the men who care about you as much as they care about, they care about the next congregation as much as their own congregation. You know, I have ministers who contact us and want to know how to do this, that, and the other thing. They don't want me to know who their congregation is. In many cases, they don't even want their congregation to know who I am. Or who anybody else is. Because they covet their congregation. You don't want that. Because the congregation is not supposed to belong to the minister. And the minister doesn't really belong to the congregation. The minister belongs to himself and his relationship with God. And he should be wanting to cultivate that in all the people that are freely assembled and have chosen him as ministers. He wants them to be awakened to their own revelation. And their own understanding. So, first, independent judiciary is the congregation itself. They have a dispute inside their congregation. They need to sit down and resolve it, like we see with Ruth and Boaz. They immediately got ten elders to resolve this legal issue with Ruth and Boaz. Okay, what if it's people from different congregations... Okay, well, then you can have Vordire. He gets to pick six, and you get to pick six. And they sit on the jury. And you have to agree to his six, and he has to agree to your six. Well, what happens if he doesn't want to agree? He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He just wants to go out and be an outlaw. Well, then you you try him in absentia, and you 
you notify everybody in this existing network and all the ministers in the existing network and they notify everybody else and he suddenly, unless he comes to defend himself, they may decide that he's not worth doing business with. And when he cries for help, they may not come. Because they have, they have seen him as an outlaw. He, he cheated somebody and he didn't want to answer to it. He didn't want to, uh, make a case for what he did. He didn't want to defend himself before the community. So that independent judiciary tried the case. They don't have to go punish him. He's punishing himself because he's making himself outlaw. He's making himself separate. And, uh, and nobody will want to do business with him because they know he's a cheat and a liar. You know, I live in a small community. And I was telling somebody this the other day. If you're a contractor in Fresno or L.A. or San Francisco, you can cheat people every day. And there's still another customer coming around the corner who doesn't know you, doesn't know the people you cheated. And you can you can stay in business for 30, 40 years. Cheating people on a regular basis and getting away with it. If you're clever. You come out here to a small community where everybody knows each other. Then they're not really networking, but we talk to each other. And you cheat somebody, everybody's going to know. Nobody. I've seen people who cheated a guy. They weren't contractors. They cheated the contractor. And they were thrown out of the building supply place. We don't need your money here. <laughs> They they ended up having to drive 50 miles away just to buy beer. <laughs> because nobody would have anything to do with him. And, you know, and when he wanted to cheat on his wife, he had to go even farther to find somebody to cheat on his wife. <laughs> so, because everybody knows what goes on. You, you don't do that in a tight-knit community. And, of course, that's what the kingdom is. This tight-knit community. Now, we've had people come around in the network. And we could see right away that there were these people who like to... They're going to come to your house and help. And they're going to live in your house and eat at your table. And they're going to cause all kinds of trouble. Well, it doesn't take very long and we find out who they are. And they don't get anywhere. Because we see them coming. Because we communicate. You know, and he can, we've had a couple of these guys, we say, okay, can you defend yourself? What did you do here? And they, they just shock. We know what they're up to. And, you know, they could defend themselves and make a case and maybe they're being falsely accused, but they're not. Well, that goes for everything, every aspect. So pretty soon what happens is the dishonest people you can't trust who are causing trouble either die off or move out of town they go somewhere else because everybody else cares enough about each other i've seen where people were cheated by somebody and i says can you write up something stating that you were cheated by this guy so i can take it to the other people and oh no i don't want anybody to even know but you know these guys are going to cheat other people yeah but that's none of my business well that's not kingdom you see this is essential. That's why I say freedom doesn't work for unvirtuous people. You have to care about others as much as you care about yourself. But anyway, let's go back to that independent judiciary. If you're getting judged by the people in your free assembly, or in several free assemblies around about you, how independent is that? You know that emotions can run high. 
You might be a pretty good guy, but not real popular. You stepped on a lot of toes. You've been rude, whatever. You know, you grew up in the community and people don't trust you. And you might not get a fair shake at one of these local trials because people just are fed up with your you, you, the behavior that you've manifested for years. You might be turning around and you might not, but you didn't get a fair trial. So where's your independent judiciary? Well, you appeal up. And where you appeal up? To the network. Now, who who's going to be sitting on the next jury? The appellate court. Now, this is... You're not getting tried twice. You're, you've gone up to an appellate court to have the verdict against you overturned. Well, who's on that appellate court? It's, it's a bunch of guys in charge of redistribution of charity. It's men of service. Men who spend their lives caring about other people. They don't wear black robes and guaranteed pensions. They are actually hands-on, uh, contributors to the community that are operating, a community that operates by faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence. They're going to take a look at your case and they're going to decide whether you got a good deal or not. That's a really good appellate court system. And that's what they had set up in Israel. They called it the cities of refuge. And all you had to do was appeal to them and nobody could touch you. You didn't run to some city and get in through the gate. Those are metaphors. And we've talked about this. We have a whole article on it. And I'll hopefully get time to put these links on the page so you can see that. I, I've got a place where I can put it. I may have actually already done it. As a matter of fact, I think I did. Under, uh, oh, don't see it, but it's here somewhere. <laughs> I'll look, uh, when I've, I've, I look at the coding and see if I put it in. But that's your independent judiciary. Who's the watchdogs? It's every man in every congregation. It's, it's your town criers. It's, it's the people who, are in the know, go to the courts, older guys who are experienced, and they say, wait a minute, I think, because this is, this is what happened in Israel. The people were appealing up, and guys were taking bribes. These guys who were supposed to be in charge of charity, they were taking bribes. Now, what led up to that? Well, that's a, I could give you a couple of guesses. I, I don't find clear evidence of it, but we know they were taking bribes. And they were letting people off the hook they shouldn't have been letting off the hook. And so they said, we want to have a king that can go in and fire these guys, these porters of the temple. Because that's eventually you get up to the porters of the temple, which are what we call the money changers. And they're they're just higher up this level of service. And they might be providing pretty good service, but maybe they were taking bribes too. And that seems to be the case and they may have not taken a lot, but they, I mean, we just had several judges over the last few years go to jail for life for taking millions of dollars in kickbacks to put children in prison to keep the prison beds full because the guys who built the reformatories or the, you know, teenage prisons, whatever they call them, needed to have those beds full to make the big bucks. And they were ha- they were making enough money that they would send, get, pay a million dollars to a single judge who was just sending guys, you know, stole some bubble gum, go to jail. 
just to keep the beds full because they make money every time there's another kid in jail. And this has happened more times than they have prosecuted. I could tell you other places that this has happened. So this idea of judges taking bribes is always there, but less likely to find it amongst people who are actually in the charity business. But if you do find it, do you have to elect a king to get rid of them? No. The watchdog organizations should be the guys who say they get reports that there's bribery afoot. They look into it. These are courts of record. You need to find out what what's the deal here. Why did he go? And where did you did you take a bribe? And they and if it becomes so suspicious, you can go back down to the ministers because you have to remember this network. Ten families pick a minister. Ten ministers pick the next minister. Ten of those ministers pick the next minister. This is the network up through your appellate court. If you think somebody's taking a bribe, you have an investigation, you know, amongst yourselves, and you say to your minister, I think that guy needs to be removed. It looks like he took a bribe. I don't get it. We know that guy was guilty and he let him off. And that's the way you should have done it. But that takes a little bit of time. They didn't want to do that. They just want to get Saul to do it for him. And that's why you have to be careful that your ministers, your elders aren't taking bribes and making choices that are oppressing some members of the community or some tribes and letting others off free. You have to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that's that's very important to understand how the judiciary, and there's a lot more to it, but I'm just giving you a brief rundown. The one thing they also didn't mention is economic activity where uh, he believes most people spend most of their lives. So what do, you, what do we have as economic activity in the kingdom of God? Well, one thing, the kingdom of God for the general population is totally a capitalist society. There is no socialism as we define socialism today. Socialism is both a economic and political system. Capitalism is not a political system. It's just an economic system. We have to protect your rights, your right to property, your right to your children. That's our job. But it doesn't go beyond that as far as that protection. Now, if people fall on hard times, the ministers of the church are supposed to rightly divide the bread. What bread? The bread that people freely give. And if they do a good job, they will be strengthening the poor. If somebody falls on hard times, they get injured, whatever. You really help them out. Okay, this guy's never going to walk again. He's broke his back. He can't do what he used to do for a living. Well, we have to help retrain him and find some position that he can do where he doesn't have to walk anymore because he can't walk. And, uh, you know, maybe he can run for for uh, become a minister <laughs> and we'll get him an electric wheelchair. I don't know. Whatever he's good at, we have to help him find some way to make a living. We don't just send him a check like the world does. And, you know, he drives back and forth and drinks his beer and becomes an absolute useless member of society. We we know that it's important for the psychology of an individual to have value and purpose. So the worst thing to do is just send him some money because he never has to work again. Because he fell off the roof when he was half drunk to begin with or whatever. 
whatever reason he gets injured, we can still help him out, but we have to be doing it in a way that strengthens him. So what are the other things you would do with economic activity? Well, where's your money? And this is one of the things that he brought up. Do you create your own banking system, your own note system? Well, I'll give you a little hint. Now, some people argue with this, and I understand it's a conspiracy theory, but it's very clear that Kennedy did start to issue U.S. Treasury notes out of the blue. And when his brother was the Attorney General and uh, had several conferences with him, he also implemented numerous uh executive orders where he could nationalize transportation, fuel, all kinds of things. Because he believed that, according to some, they believed that the Federal Reserve would collapse the economy if you tried to replace the Federal Reserve notes with U.S. notes. And they might have done that. And so he was gearing up to evidently shift over to U.S. notes. He didn't print very many of them, but he started to. And he thought he had more time, but suddenly he's dead. And LBJ takes over, and almost the first day, maybe even the first day, I can't remember now, it's been a lot of years, he signed an order to stop the printing of U.S. notes. Now, I wouldn't have put much to the story except for the fact that that was one of the first things he did. I can tell you this, if you suddenly take over the presidency, that shouldn't be one of the first things you do. They weren't printing that many, well, why? How did that even get on the agenda? Well, anyway, and then, of course, uh, they had been downgrading our presence in Vietnam, and LBJ reversed that. LBJ was not a good guy. I was I was a Texas boy at the time. <laughs> you know, uh, I was I, I I was been at picnics with uh, George Bush Jr. <laughs> And so, I mean, I knew people, my dad knew people high up in the Texas government. And as far as he was concerned, they were almost all good old boy corrupt. And uh, so, yeah, uh, he was not a good guy. Uh, not in, in the least. But anyway, the point is, is that this uh, idea of... of uh, Taking care of the needy of society, and, and back to money, I was going to also mention what happened to Saddam Hussein. That was all about the money, folks. He was starting to monetize his oil, not in U.S. dollars, but in his own currency. And uh, he had he didn't have a Federal Reserve system quite like ours. He had some, uh, there was a peculiar way in which they printed the money in Iraq. Same thing in Afghanistan, same thing in Iran, same thing in Panama, same thing in East Timor. First thing they do when we go in there and conquer these or send arms to conquer these countries is they start a a Federal Reserve. So there is a connection. If you start doing something that actually threatens the power of the Federal Reserve, you know, like Gaddafi did, your your days are probably numbered. So that's not where you start anyway, and that's one of the things I mentioned in the radio broadcast, is that's not where you start. Uh, you start somewhere else. But some of the other things is now religious and educational freedom. And we'll probably have to talk about that at another time. 
But on the page, I end up talking Polybius again and the Perfect Savages, and we'll just address that. Everybody join the network at preparingyou.com, and we will learn a lot of the details that I'm not going to broadcast on the radio. Until, until then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. Have a good day. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.